The History of College Football is a podcast dedicated to preserving the college football gridiron memories from years gone by. Please feel free to visit our website at historyofcollegefootball.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to History of College Football Podcast. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Maya Washington, filmmaker, writer, actor, and director, writer-director of Clear, and Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, a book about her father, Minnesota Vikings legend, wide receiver Gene Washington, and his teammates. She may, uh, she may be found on Twitter at I Meyer Washington. That's at I-M-A-Y-A-W-A-S-H-I-N-G-T-O-N. Meyer Washington's father, Gene Washington, became a legend at Michigan State and then in the NFL with the Minnesota Vikings. Gene Washington is in the College Football Hall of Fame and is a member of the 1969 NFL champion Minnesota Vikings. At Michigan State, as a sophomore, Gene Washington started at wide receiver. Washington would go on to set Michigan State season records for wide receivers for both receptions and yards. Washington was a two-time first-team All-American, led the Spartans to two shared national championships, and in 1966, at Michigan State, Gene Washington averaged 25 yards per catch. Ms. Washington, it is indeed an honor to have you on my podcast. How are you today? I'm awesome. I'm so grateful to be here. Oh, thank you so much. For a little background for our audience, Maya Washington wrote a book entitled Through the Banks of the Red Sea, My Father and the Team That Changed the Game. It's a warm and deeply moving memoir about a daughter's love for her father and her appreciation for how he and others changed the game of football forever. The book was based on the award-winning documentary of the same name that debuted on the Big Ten Network and is currently airing on PBS for Black History Month. Your book made Essence's most anticipated books of 2022. Congratulations, by the way. So let me begin this interview by asking you, what motivated you to write this book? Well, you know, I was uh, really surprised to hear so much of my dad's uh, personal, uh, I guess, civil rights history uh, as it pertained to Michigan State University. I didn't necessarily grow up hearing uh, the specifics of how Duffy Doherty created a pipeline from the South to Michigan State, recruiting Black players like my father. And I was motivated to first make the film uh, when Bubba Smith passed away in 2011, my dad's teammate. I only knew Bubba Smith really as Hightower from the Police Academy movies. And so uh, when I attended his memorial service and spent some time with my dad and his teammates there, I started to hear stories about uh, the ways that Bubba Smith really impacted my dad's life by making a recommendation to the coaches at Michigan State. I always knew that segregation was an important part of my family story, that my parents grew up in a very different America than I did. 
but I didn't know the detail that it was Bubba Smith and his father that recommended my dad for that opportunity. So I kind of was confronted with this desire to say thank you to Bubba Smith uh, uh, for everything that he and his family did that ultimately changed my dad's life and my own. But when you have these realizations at somebody's memorial service, it's, it's too late, you know, to, to thank them in the flesh. And so uh, the past 10 years, I've learned everything I possibly could about this uh, time period and was motivated to share that with others, uh, sort of as a love letter to Bubba Smith in appreciation, but also in gratitude and appreciation to uh, all of the men of his generation and certainly his teammates at Michigan State University who were on the first fully integrated college team. That is incredibly moving, thank you. If I may ask, how did you decide to title the documentary and the book through the banks of the Red Cedar? So, you know, I grew up hearing the fight song my whole life. Both of my parents are Spartans. And so um, when I was thinking about how I tell a story and, and that the motivation is around the idea that this opportunity changed my dad's life and um, changed America. And so that's where I get the through the banks to the Red Cedar. It's a play on the Michigan State fight song. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, you produced the documentary and wrote the book. Producing a documentary, writing a book, they're very different processes. Can you speak to what you enjoyed and even possibly not enjoyed about each of the two processes? Well, I think for the documentary, uh, I really enjoyed traveling around the country and, and getting to interview people who knew my parents, like, you know, 40 and 50 years ago and, and learning about uh, my dad, especially through the lens of other people and their memories and their stories. And uh, that aspect was really, really rewarding. I also, um, because of the challenges that I faced as a woman and as a small brown woman making a football movie at a time when culturally we weren't ready to have these kinds of conversations about race, because you have to look back at 20, even, you know, 2011 is when Bubba passed away, 2012 and 2013 are sort of when I first kind of got things uh, rolling on the project. And so I encountered a lot of obstacles in finding funding, in um, enrolling what I would have thought would have been excited um, sports networks or, or others who would think that this was an important story. And so while that was disheartening to encounter obstacles, what was really rewarding is that uh, people all over the country, because I had to crowdfund, uh, came out of the woodwork in support of this story, uh, in support of my father. So many people uh, have all these memories of him, whether it was watching him on TV growing up or a personal interaction they had or a way that he uh, impacted their life or their career uh, because of his work after football uh, in corporate America. So that was incredible to have that confirmation that I wasn't crazy, that there were people who really were excited about this history that my dad and his teammates had really impacted a lot of people. And those folks came out in amazing support. I mean, people who would donate $5 religiously every month, uh, which is so touching to me, you know, because 
for uh, people uh, that can be such a sacrifice, you know, for somebody to take the time and, and to give an amount like $5, it, it means a lot because they gave um, from their heart, but it also demonstrated, okay, so that's interesting, you know, I can't, uh, you know, find the support of a sports network, right, they can't even buy me a cup of coffee, uh, but this gentleman or this woman, um, you know, all the way across the United States finds a way to send me $5 every month because they believe in me and they believe in this project. And of course, um, you know, I, I was able to get grants that were much bigger than that. Um, there were other individuals who were in a position to give more, but it was very, very touching to have those gestures. I had a, um, one of my friends, she was um, a hardworking mom and an artist, and she would send $10 in support of the film every month. So that was probably the most rewarding part because it, it helped me understand that this story doesn't just belong to me. It belongs to everyone who, were, uh, who was impacted or who was around to remember what happened you know, on the banks of the Red Cedar all those years ago. So by the time I got to the book, the film was released to the film festival circuit in 2018 and we'd done a... Um, educational tour throughout 2018 and 2019 leading up to the pandemic and it did debut on a sports network it debuted on um, the Big Ten Network in 2020 and it's now on PBS uh, but in 2018 um, it was an opportunity that emerged to write a book and um, that process was much smoother because it was uh, a different a different situation. I had already had the story and a publisher um, and I were able to have a conversation. So a lot of the stresses of funding that process um, weren't, weren't there. And I'd done a lot of the research by then, but to move into uh, a written work and to tell the story on a different platform, of course, you know, had its challenges to try to think about how do I maintain some of that weave that we had in the documentary, there's a father-daughter story that happens. Um, there's a way of, of balancing what happened in the past with, with what's happening now. And so those were some of the creative challenges, which I really enjoy. You know, as an artist, um, I'm happy to solve riddles and puzzles creatively all day. It's, it's the other stuff, you know, that the having to convince people that um, this endeavor is, is worthwhile. So um, all in all, I'm, I'm so grateful that um, audiences and readers uh, can enjoy both the book and the film now. That is so great to hear. I mean, clearly you reached a populace that was just reminiscent of your father and got on board as you produced the documentary. And uh, I can relate. I mean, growing up in the late 60s, I watched football and I remember your father very well. And my favorite team was the Kansas City Chiefs so going to that Super Bowl. I feel oh. the man. <laughs> For the story itself, tell us a little bit about the book, please. So the book um, really sort of is this companion, I would say, to the movie, where you get to learn more about the cultural climate at Michigan State University at the time, uh, what was happening in America uh, around the time of these key games to kind of track uh, what was happening in American history with what was happening in football history at the same time. I, it also gave me an opportunity to explore some of those early players who preceded my dad. 
you know, who were playing football often as the uh, loan integrator at an institution um, and, and having to navigate what that experience was like and to really think about the, the courage, the bravery and the excellence that those players uh, demonstrated so that by the time the late 40s, 50s and 60s come around and you've got Biggie Munn and, and Duffy Doherty at Michigan State starting to really increase the numbers, um, it, it kind of helps you appreciate that evolution that my dad and his teammates, it didn't just come out of nowhere, <laughs> um, that there was this really um, slow progression that may have been really lonely for uh, Black players uh, who preceded him. So I think those are some of the things that uh, the football community and football historians, I think, appreciate and enjoy looking back on the game in that way. Uh, there's also this father-daughter story and this understanding of, of what happened in my parents' lives and their interactions with race and mine, you know, growing up in a very different environment in uh, Minnesota and um, all of these things sort of informing each other, very uh, intergenerational <laughs> uh, storytelling that, that unfolds in the book. Well, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there are many layers to the book. You have a social history, you have a history of football itself, and then, then the father-daughter relationship. Uh, incredible. Uh, may, may I ask, do you, do you think the story will be interpreted differently? You have these two different mediums. You have a documentary, right? You have a book. Will the impact be the same with each? You know, I, I so far, um, it seems like I'm at the feedback I'm receiving. Um, so certainly there are certain things that are consistent. People just really grateful to reminisce about this time period. Uh, people who, uh, who aren't football fans who uh, really are say things like, I don't even like football, but I love this book <laughs> or I love this movie. Um, and that's a pretty high compliment, you know, for, for me because I will be very honest, I was not a diehard um, football junkie before this process. I'm an artist first, you know, um, started in dance and theater and um, film and, and writing and, and all of those things are, are the direction my life took. The closest I came to football fields growing up would be to dance in halftime shows as a kid, I was a competitive dancer. And so sometimes we'd be invited to perform. I got to perform in like a Super Bowl when I was a kid. Oh, wow, um, which Super Bowl? I'm sorry. Um, it was 1992 in Minneapolis. I don't remember which Roman numerals because <laughs> I was a kid and, and they kept us in holding. So we didn't get to actually watch the game, but Gloria Estefan was the, um, hmm. was the uh, performer, was the headliner for that. And so when I started this process, uh, what drew me to it was the uh, emotional story of the historical, of the hero's journey of overcoming obstacles and finding success and cooperation through sports. So the reaction uh, from both the sports folks who say, yeah, you, you, you know, you did it, you know, <laughs> like they're, you know, patting me on the back, which I take, you know, to heart. That means a lot to me because I've grown so much in the past 10 years and learned so much about the game uh, in my effort to learn more about my dad's uh, personal story. And at the same time, um, folks seem between the book and the film um, 
to really have those similar responses. The football folks just love it, you know, um, because it's football and it's history, right. and it's their heroes. Um, and the not football people um, are loving it because it gives them an access into something that maybe they, uh, you know, go to a Super Bowl party and, and do more time chatting and eating food than they do watching the game or, or maybe they don't appreciate um, what led up to that game, you know, so the diehard fans, you know, are sitting there re re reminiscing over the whole season, right, that got us to the Super Bowl. But um, those folks who aren't as um, connected to football beyond championship season or bowl season, um, they are responding as well. And I think that's pretty cool. Oh, that's very cool. Many levels to this book. And, and I assumed you, as you learned about your dad's teammates, your dad's history, you must have learned about your own history. Can you tell to us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, it was really really humbling, I think, that as hard as it was, you know, just to finance all of this, um, to do things like sit down with my aunt and aunts, plural, um, but, you know, one of my aunts um, is a little bit more of a private person. She's a bit more quiet and um, to sit down with her and for her to tell me stories that I'd never heard about what her life was like after my dad went off to college and what her experience was like in segregation is just such a, such a miracle and a blessing and something that would never have happened between us if I hadn't taken on a project. Um, culturally, my, my family in the South in Texas, um, they're just like amazing, warm, kind people, but people don't talk a lot about this, you know, storytelling or deep, <laughs> you know, you don't get to have these like deep, meaningful right. conversations about the meaning of life <laughs> or who they were, you know, in their youth. Um, it's, it's a different culture. It's just very pragmatic. It's, did you eat? Are you hungry? Mm. You know, um, uh, well, how, you know, how's the weather, you know, like there's not, there's, it's just not the culture, you know, to just jump in and be like, you know, who was your best friend when you were 10, you know, or what were you most afraid of when you were 15, you know, like those aren't natural questions culturally that, that come out in that context. And I think that's true for a lot of families, you know? Um, and so unless you're a, a storyteller like you or me, um, no one's going to just naturally start spilling their <laughs> spilling their life story right. if you don't um, nudge them or invite them to. So I think that was that was probably the most rewarding thing because in learning more about my family, of course, I learned about myself. Oh, I can um, see that. You, you touched upon earlier the desegregation of college football. The Michigan State coach Duffy Darty's vital role in it um, is seemed to be as downplayed as history, you know, looks back on it. Why do you think his role isn't as well known or perhaps appreciated as it as it should be? You know, I feel like that's probably a question I'll be, you know, attempting to answer until it's no <laughs> until it's well known. And then people sure. say, I don't know what's so, you know, special about your story. Everybody knows about Tommy Doherty. Um, <laughs> but I think it's the distance, um, the time that's passed of Again, I was interested in this 10 years ago, but um, it still hadn't 
uh, caught on or caught fire in the way that finally we're hearing this more um, through my project, um, <clears throat> through others, as well as, you know, the university is talking about this more. But I think some of it is, um, it was so organic. And I think at the time, I, I can only, you know, um, I can only assume, I, you know, Duffy's no longer with us, John Hanna and Biggie, Biggie Mon are no longer with us. Um, I did interview um, Dan Doherty, Duffy's son, hmm. and um, his daughter, Dree. Um, Danny is no longer with us. Danny passed a few years ago. So I can only go by um, my instinct or intuition or the conversations that I've had that I think they really were focused on building um, a powerhouse football program and saw an opportunity and saw a strategy of, of recruiting Black players from the South um, that would pay off because they'd had um, a history of, of Black players contributing to the team. Uh, so it was a kind of a calculated risk. Um, they had a boss in John Hanna, who was the president of the university, and he was a chairperson of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So he was working in the White House, uh, helping to evaluate, investigate, and inform legislators on how to move forward with civil rights legislation in 1964 and 1965. So the temperature was there for them to do this and to do it successfully but I think it was just really organic. It was one foot in front of the other. And that effort paid off when they became national champions in 65 and 66. So I think um, what happened right after that is by law, the federal government started to put more pressure on Southern schools to, to integrate their programs. Public schools who were getting federal funding um, had to catch up. And uh, those schools started to integrate. And uh, what was a really fertile recruiting ground for Duffy Doherty started to dry up because you've got black players who don't have to leave. They can stay in their home state and compete. Um, and that sort of transition, um, I think might be where um, that detail was, was lost because so much shifting and change and progress occurred in the late 60s and 70s that um, I just don't think people appreciated. I think coaches around the country knew the impact that Duffy Doherty had on their profession because he had the coach of the year clinics mm -hmm. and he was, he was known um, throughout the United States to other coaches. Uh, even uh, I got to sit down uh, with Bud Grant for lunch a few years ago with my dad and Clinton. There's a little story about that in the, in the book. Um, and even Bud Grant said he went to one of Duffy Doherty's uh -huh. uh, coaching clinics, you know, um, and that's how he, you know, heard about my dad and, and Clinton Jones, who he ended up um, drafting uh, because there was this awareness of Duffy Doherty and what he was doing and the talent of, of his roster. But I think a, a combination of Duffy not bragging about it, <laughs> you know, or, or, or having, you know, a big platform to say, look at me, look what I did. Yes. Um, but also whatever was unique about it was sort of short lived before other schools started to do it too. And the sport started to look the way the sport does today where where you know you're not the only team in the big 10 
or in the country that has the numbers of African-American players that Michigan State had at that time. So I, that's my best guess for, for why it's not better known. Well, you provided a wonderful history lesson for myself, for, for my audience, and I thank you. And, and, and you provided a, national, uh, a really nice segue to my next question, because if we move and fast forward through time to today, as the national conversation about racial injustice continues, what do you hope Through the Banks of the Red Cedar says about the Black experience in America? Well, I think for me as a Black person, I hope other Black people, you know, take from it. But of course, people of, of all ethnic backgrounds, the idea that history is in our own households. Mm. And uh, so much of the framework of media and sports have, have historically left a lot of stories out because, um, that that's just our, our real honest to goodness truth, you know, about our great nation that um, certain stories, certain lives, certain uh, experiences um, are highlighted, elevated and celebrated while others uh, people just really don't know anything about. And for me, uh, recognizing that history is in our own household, that for many African-Americans, we have these barrier breaking uh, stories in our own living rooms. But because culturally, again, unless you go, <laughs> unless you go and, and have courage as a younger person to say aunt so-and-so or, or grandma or grandfather or uncle so-and-so, tell me about your first job, you know? And you, and you will find out they were the first African-American mail carrier. Uh, in a small town, or they were the first, you know, like, like that they had some kind of amazing story, but because the way they've always told it, oh yeah, he was in the military, or, you know, he, he was a, um, you know, he was a handyman, or she was a maid, or, or whatever, is sort of where we're left with the identities or the professions of our grandparents and great-grandparents, but to ask a little further, well, what do you mean she was a maid? Where did, where did she work? Um, and how did she get that job? And, you know, those types of ways of, of learning more. So I think in terms of the Black experience in America, um, it's evolving. And there's so much of it that um, all of us as Americans have, have not had access to uh, because we haven't been encouraged to celebrate those stories. So I think the, the Black experience, um, as I tell it in my book, is just one of many experiences. And there's ways that my family's journey might be similar to other families, uh, but also knowing that there are uh, experiences that we haven't even uh, come to learn about or know about. Um, and I hope my book um, makes, makes it possible for us to, to continue to get to hear more of these uh, types of stories, a diversity of Black stories, um, and especially Black sports stories. Very eloquently spoken. And I, and I guess I, I would ask, if I narrow the niche, what, what do you think your book would speak to the current African-American athletes? What, what could they take to, from it? Well, I think the cool thing about, you know, getting to do a film first, and now the book, and uh, feeling like I've been blessed to be in close proximity to many of the football players at Michigan State, you know, at least um, have a connection to the football program the past 10 years, 
And the players who are exposed to the film and the book, as well as players uh, throughout the Big Ten Conference or other parts of um, the country, I, I had a chance to participate in the ASU um, Global Sports mm. um, uh, Institute. They had a, a really cool event uh, that my dad and I got to come to as a conference and share the film. So even outside of uh, Michigan State, uh, players who are currently in the game, especially African-American players, they really appreciate knowing who came before them because for them, these are stories they didn't hear. So in the same way that I'm saying there's stories I haven't heard, these, these stories were, were sort of kept from them uh, to really understand what it took to make a, a college scholarship or a, an opportunity uh, to even be considered you know, for a college education, let alone to go into the NFL and to be a first round pick like my dad and his other teammates, it really, um, it's really inspiring. It's really inspiring for them um, and gives them a, a sense of, I hope that um, there were people who came before you who went through really hard things <laughs> and whatever hard thing you're going through right now there are people 50 years into the future who are relying on you to meet your success and to give back. And so I think uh, that that's pretty much seems to be the common reaction from the athletes today. And I hope that it continues to be what, what they experience when they read a story like this. Oh, you've given us some great insight here. Thank you. I had read that, that you acknowledged the privilege you had growing up and it didn't shield you from the prejudice of others. Uh, if what I've read is accurate, can you, can you talk about that, please? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, growing up in Minnesota, I grew up in a predominantly white suburb. Um, and so often that meant I was the only black child <laughs> in almost every situation. My sisters are 10 and seven years older than me. So um, most of my school years, they preceded me. So if there were teachers, they would knew, oh, that's you know Gina or Lisa's little sister. And for that community that we grew up in, they knew that's Jean Washington's daughter or their family. So there was a certain amount of regard or respect um, but by then, um, my dad's career had ended, you know, so he wasn't playing football throughout my, my childhood. My sister's childhoods were uh, very different than mine. And so uh, because of that, I wasn't shielded from, you know, being called racist epithets at school or being made fun of for my skin color um, or being in an environment where kids and their families had become so comfortable with me that I'm over for dinner or I'm visiting and their families are having, you know, overtly racist conversations or saying things that are offensive. And I'm a little girl hearing this and knowing that this isn't, this isn't right, but it's happening so casually um, that I'm, I'm navigating a world that's much freer than what my parents had. I had the privilege of a public education, uh, the opportunity to go to school with white children. Um, and when I say opportunity, it just means the quality of education they were getting was the same as what I was getting instead of uh, what my parents experienced in the South, um, the, the black uh, education system uh, that was provided publicly 
uh, was usually um, second class and, and uh, really not equal to their white peers. So I had access to so much that my parents didn't have access to, little things like being able to go see a doctor. They couldn't be seen by doctors. You know, They couldn't go use a restroom. Um, all the times I think of us on family road trips and being able to stop at a gas station when you know, nature calls and, and go to the restroom and buy snacks and things like that. Those were things that my parents didn't have. And so I 100% consider all of that a form of privilege. Um, having having access that my parents didn't have, uh, but even with all of this unprecedented access, um, I still had to feel the weight and the hurt um, of racism, you know. Um, but what I endured uh, was nothing like what my parents went through. Um, but it still, I think. Um, gives us an idea that uh, racism didn't just end, <laughs> you know, um, in, the, in, the, in the late sixties, that it persisted and morphed and um, that there are a lot of um, people whose stories are similar to mine um, growing up in an integrated world. Um, and there's people whose stories are worse, um, who, who, you know, not only got called names, but were physically harmed, you know, or, um, maybe didn't didn't get opportunities uh, that they were qualified for because of uh, a mindset um, that was still acceptable in those times. Oh, incredible journey! I, I you have such an appreciation of the timeline from your parents' generation to to yours. I appreciate that. You know, I had also read that that you felt that you you as you were raised, you had to go above and beyond just so you could be seen as equal in the eyes of white America. Again, providing that what I read is true, do you still feel affected of being raised to go above and beyond so you could be seen equal in the eyes of white America? I, well, I do, um, but the difference is, I think when I was young and, and this being a value that I was taught by my parents um, that I think is, is common for uh, black people of my generation, the idea that you have to run faster, you have to work harder, you have to jump higher, it becomes a, an idea that from birth, you are already, you know, at the starting line of some epic competition, you know, just to be seen as equal, as human, as valid, um, which I think for my parents' generation was a really effective and pragmatic way to survive, um, because, what else do you have um, but the things that you can do to develop and improve yourself to compete in a world that's already decided you are worthless. Um, and so for me and my siblings, though, at some point that does start to take a toll because it's not realistic to be perfect, <laughs> you know, um, and not just like perfect, uh, meaning, okay, we have good values, we're good people with good hearts. That's simple enough. Um, but to feel like in every environment and certainly as you become an adult, um, that, that you have to, um, you know, you, you can't miss the answers on the test. You got to get all of the answers right. You've got to, you know, knock it out of the park when it comes to these metrics that measure you up against other people. Because the assumption is because you're Black, you are not as intelligent, you are not as hardworking or motivated or all of these uh, stereotypes that we know aren't true, 
Um, but that's what we were contending with um, as we were growing up and, and shaping our lives and our careers. But what's shifted for me, uh, I think, thank goodness, in my adulthood is to separate what was um, valuable uh, life, you know, life hacking, right? It, it pays to be prepared. It pays to be a thirsty, hungry person who uh, betters themselves and, and aspires to learn um, and be the best at whatever you decide to do. If you decide you want to learn how to... Um, I don't know, make a great pancake, <laughs> you know? And so you go and you apply that and you work hard and you practice. Like that reward is in the growth of you going from not knowing how to make a pancake to making like an exquisite world-class pancake. That's supposed to be the joy of learning, not I'm making this pancake so that you <laughs> will accept me, <laughs> so that you won't make fun of me, so that you won't keep me from eating, you know? Um, and so um, I'm really grateful that some of that has lessened and that anything that I do with my whole heart and my whole soul, I do it not to prove that I'm worthy or to prove to somebody that I am uh, equal, that I as a human being am connected to them as a human being, that we are all connected. Um, I do it because I desire to be the best at whatever I set my mind to. And I do that for myself. I do that for my parents, you know, to honor the sacrifices that they uh, endured for my grandparents. And uh, that I think is, is a gift that my generation has access to that my parents didn't because um, my survival uh, doesn't depend on me convincing you or any other person um, that I am your equal, you know, that, that we bleed the same blood, that we have the same right to, to live, to have dreams, to pursue uh, the things that interest us, to make a difference in the world. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting way to both appreciate uh, how hard my parents had to work and, and, but recognize that that kind of perfectionism isn't sustainable and it isn't fair. Um, that we as human beings should never put other human beings in a position where they're required to prove that their life has value. Right. Very eloquently said. How did making this documentary and writing the book affect your relationship with your father? Has he reacted to the film or the book? Yeah, he loves both. <laughs> Yeah. And he's, you know, I'm a little more skittish about reading um, uh, reviews and stuff like that. I think we're at a positive volume of them now that maybe I'll peek every now and again. Um, but he, you know, reads all of the reviews. He is so excited and so proud of um, the way that uh, I've persevered through a really difficult um process, you know, the past 10 years, and also jokes that he's learning things that he didn't know <laughs> every time he reads the book or every time he talks to me. And, and, and I feel the same about him, you know, we'll have a conversation. And just when I think I've known everything there is to know about my dad, some new, well, you know, um, and he'll tell some story um, that really uh, moves me. And I'm like, wow, I, I had no idea. That's, that's another story. And it, and it leads me to to want to go down another wormhole, but I think what's really special, and I hope for your listeners, um, 
that idea that history is in your own household and it just kind of begins with with somebody opening up and taking that risk of, of asking a question in hopes that maybe you'll get more, or you'll get closer to this person. But my conversations with my dad before the film were really pragmatic. How are you? <laughs> you know, if I was living in a different state, what's the weather like there? Oh yeah, what's the weather like there? Okay, so how, you know, how are you doing in school or how's your job? Good, you know. <laughs> how are you how's your job well I'm taking a trip you know to this conference in you know New York okay great you know how's that one friend of yours I met they're good you know like that was that was it you know and that was a great conversation with my dad you know that's as far as it went but now it's like we have these um really uh, like much deeper conversations and philosophical conversations about life and um, I'm, I'm just so incredibly grateful. And what his, what he likes to joke about is, um, before the pandemic, when he would uh, be traveling and go to different events without me, because for the past 10 years, I'm always like right by his side. So, um, you know, whether he's around, um, you know, NFL folks or, uh, college football folks, they'd be like, well, where's Maya? <laughs> you know, like, like, how are you, Gene? But where's Maya, you know? Um, and so that is really funny because that's something that that shifted that people sort of uh, expect to see us at the same time. You know, if 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 Jean's there, Maya's somewhere, uh, and if Maya's there, Jean's somewhere. Um, so that that part has been um, really really awesome. That's great. If I may ask, Ms. Ms. Washington, what is the single most important thing you took away from writing the book and making the documentary? So I think it's, it's, I, you know, I keep saying history is in your own household, yes, um, but I, but I go a step further and say the single most important thing is um, you got to go after the story while you, while it's there, you know, um, time is so sweet and so precious and it's, uh, you know, the death of my dad's teammate that inspired me to get on it right? Because I was reminded that life is short um, and precious. And I think that remains the most important takeaway that I cherish every minute I get to spend with my parents, you know, um, and to, to have made it this far to have completed the two projects and still have my dad with me um, to share it with and to celebrate um, is, is, is the gift. If I may ask for the people reading your book, if they could take away just one thing from the book, what do you hope it would be? Well, I, I really hope people are inspired to, to go ask those, <laughs> ask those family members, those stories, mm -hmm. and, and to not be afraid to face difficult truths about race. You know, um, if someone in your family had strong opinions that really wouldn't hold up today. <laughs> um, it, don't be afraid of it. Um, face it, confront it, um, because that's how we make the world um, it, the cliche of a better place. But if, but if we're not willing to face the really hard and painful things and have the maturity to recognize that none of this happens in a vacuum, um, you know, like, oh, there's just, you know, um, if, if it were true, 
now, granted, if you're on the receiving end of racism and other uh, forms of oppression, yeah, it feels like pure evil that someone would go out of their way to keep you from the basics of human life, a, a bathroom, for example, you know, that feels and looks like pure evil. But I think for people in this country who weren't necessarily historically on the receiving end of, of racial discrimination, to have the courage and, and look at the places maybe in their own personal history or in, um, in the current framework to have the courage to, to not be ashamed or afraid to say, yeah, that wasn't right that my aunt or my grandma used to say this, that, that wasn't cool. Um, you know, that doesn't mean you can't love them. <laughs> they can't, you know what I'm saying? They can still be your sure. favorite aunt or, but I think that's really the key. It's, it's the duality of, yes, your favorite aunt did something that was really cruel or said something or your favorite uncle or um, this um, person in your community that you looked up to may have also done things that really hurt another person. And when we have the emotional maturity and courage to recognize that both can be true at the same time and that we have the opportunity to make right what previous generations or, or, or other people um, maybe didn't quite get right in their day, um, I think that would make all the difference in the world. What advice would you give to other filmmakers or, or authors who want to tackle very important yet very deep topics? Well, I think, you know, stick with it. <laughs> yes. Um, follow, there was, um, and I don't remember who exactly it was. It may have been um, Toy Derricotta, a, a poetry uh, educator. Um, on my life's path who said, you know, uh, focus on like what you're obsessed with, you know? And so if you are obsessed with some topic or subject matter, because something in you desires to um, learn, most often learn more about yourself through that thing, you know, that there's just some otherworldly bigger than you um, reason why you're compelled or you're obsessed um, with something uh, that you have to, you have to pursue it. You have to go after it and you, and you have to have courage and not be afraid to do it on your own. You know, certainly it's great when you can enroll others or people who have means that you don't, <laughs> um, you know, whether that's in Hollywood or the publishing industry or whatever. But if you really believe in and are truly obsessed with the story that you want to tell, uh, the resources will show up. The, the people who also agree and are hungry to either participate in the creation of that artwork um, or who just want to support it and, and believe in you and want to see you uh, do it so that they can enjoy it once it's done, um, you have to go for it and you have to have courage uh, when it gets tough uh, to keep going and to believe that whatever it is that you're obsessed with, if there's something in it for others, like if it's not just about you and it's not just, <laughs> you know, solely for you, if there's some benefit to others in it, true benefit, and that becomes your, your purpose, um, it, you will succeed. Wow, that really resonates with me. I've been in higher ed for over 40 years and I keep telling my students, my own kids, <clears throat> you know, embrace your passion. I mean, that's what life is about. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you, Ms. Maya Washington. You've been a tremendous guest. Ms. Maya Washington may be found on Twitter at iMayaWashington. 
M-A-Y-A-W-A-S-H-I-N-G-T-O-N. The book is entitled Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, My Father and the Team That Changed the Game. I encourage all of you to read the book and follow this woman on Twitter. Thank you for listening to the History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode. Thank <laughs> you.